Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we'll be discussing Harper Lee's novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird takes place in a small town in southern Alabama during the Great Depression, from 1933 to 1935. The book is told from a young girl named Scout's perspective. The book is broken into two parts. The first is about Scout growing up with her brother Jem and her friend Dill. They attempt to make contact with the mysterious town recluse named Boo Radley. The second part of the book, which is much longer than the first part of the book, revolves around a trial in which a black man is falsely accused of rape, and Scout's father, Atticus, defends him, but despite his best efforts, he's not able to exonerate his client. This is one of the most widely taught books in the United States. Naturally, the themes that most teachers emphasize are the lessons that can be learned about tolerance and decrying prejudice. Since these lessons are relatively easy to find in the text, and these are things that you already know about, I want to try to show you some of the riches that are missed when you focus only on those lessons. Indeed, what astonished me most in my rereading of the book is a very clear criticism of progressive education and the progressive view of human nature, which is to say, Harper Lee must not think, or at least did not think at the time of writing the book, that progressive education and a progressive view of human nature are likely to bring about a world of tolerance that is free from prejudice. And this makes the book much more complicated, perhaps, than most people uh, might expect, and therefore much more worth reading. Uh, so here we will turn first to the mentions of progressive education that occur in the book. Uh, then we will move to a critique of the progressive view of human nature in the form of Atticus and his failures to keep the forces of barbarism at bay that can erupt into civilization um, that end up uh, attacking his children. He ignores a lot of important signs. Uh, finally, we'll briefly conclude with Atticus's thoughtful speech on the United States Constitution and the true understanding of American equality. Early in the book, Scout reports that the residents of Maycomb County are told that the only thing that they have to fear is fear itself. This is one of the famous slogans that comes from President Roosevelt's New Deal, which uh, I, <laughs> there's a lot to say about it, but you could say that it includes a radical revision about what freedom ought to mean in the United States and what kind of rights that you should expect to have as a citizen. Now, instead of there being negative rights or only negative rights, there will be positive rights, which will always be in tension with the negative rights. But we're not here to talk about that. I mention this at all because it gives us some evidence that Harper Lee does want us to think about the progressive transformation of the United States and whether or not it can bring about um, the conclusions that it hopes to. Let's read a passage in which Scout describes uh, her teacher, um, on her first day of school. When Miss Caroline, or Miss Caroline printed her name on the blackboard and said, this says, I am Miss Caroline Fisher. I am from North Alabama, from Winston County. The class murmured apprehensively. Should she prove to harbor her share of the peculiarities indigenous to that region? When Alabama seceded from the Union on January 11th, 1861, Winston County seceded from Alabama, and every children in Maycomb County knew it. North Alabama was full of liquor interests, big mules, steel companies, Republicans, professors, and other persons of no background. We see a striking 
account of how different northern Alabama is from southern Alabama. And so the relatively more cosmopolitan northern <laughs> uh, Alabamans, I hope it's Alabamans, um, but at any rate, the northern Alabamans come down to the south to educate their poor, ignorant, and backwards uh, southern brothers and sisters. Indeed, as Miss Caroline comes into the class, we see already even in the line that I read that she presupposes that none of the students know how to read or that any of their parents would have spent any time trying to teach them, which is to say she thinks that it is her duty and her duty alone to teach the children um, how to act in the world and, and more or less everything fundamental that they need to know. She finds out that Scout knows how to read. And not only does Scout know how to read, but Scout knows how to read extremely well. Now, uh, some teachers might be delighted to discover this. They might say, oh, wow, you know, maybe you should move up a grade or you will somehow find a way to help the other kids in the class. Or at least you can rest assured that at least one of your students uh, knows how to read and will know how to read by the end of the year. Um, it should be delightful to discover that somebody knows something. But Miss Caroline's response to this is that her father, uh, Atticus, should no longer teach Scout how to read because he must have done it the wrong way. And now, undoubtedly, within education, there are different ways to teach children how to read. The two uh, that seem to be most popular now in education are whole language, where you just have kids memorize tons of sight words and sort of move from there and treat every word as a kind of a whole unto itself. Um, or there's the phonemic awareness approach in which you, you know, break words apart into their constituent sounds. Um, but at the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding. Either somebody can read or they can't. So at this point, it, this would seem to be the kind of thing. It doesn't really matter how they got there so long as they did. And Scout is devastated by this. Um, she loves reading with her father. And she goes to school hoping for an education, only to find that she's gone to a place that will completely stultify and stymie her education. We see Scout's brother, Jim, say to Scout, Don't worry, Scout, Jim confronted me. Our teacher says Miss Caroline's introducing a new way of teaching. She learned about it in college. It'll be in all the grades soon. You don't have to learn much out of books that way. It's like if you want to learn about cows, you go milk one, see? Now, undoubtedly, there's something to the idea of experiential learning. Um, and so there might not be nothing to this approach. But we can say for sure that it would appear that the universities are training teachers to go and transform the places that they go to. That in this sort of small instance, we see the ways in which um, universities, yeah, I guess try to transform public life from the bottom up. Um, and you can see this now, you know, with the way that uh, the kinds of people who are attracted to education programs and the character of education programs at universities are definitely trying to carry out um, this kind of transformative mission. When it comes to interacting with the children, Miss Caroline is clumsy beyond belief. There's a young man or a young boy named Walter Cunningham. He doesn't have any lunch, and she offers to give him a quarter. All the students realize that he will never take the quarter. The reason he won't do so is because while he's extremely poor, he's also from an honest family. They're the kind of family that will not uh, accept anything that they cannot pay back. And so Scout gently tries to explain this to Miss Caroline, and she flares up in anger. So Miss Caroline is not interested in learning about the peculiarities of her new local environment. And as a result, she decides that she, although this is, this is kind of funny, she decides that she will use 
one of the methods of discipline that is from this local backwards environment. She attempts to use corporal punishment on Scout. I'll read the passage. When Miss Caroline threatened with a similar fate, the first grade exploded again. Wondering what bargain we had made, I turned to the class for an answer. But the class looked back at me in puzzlement. Miss Caroline picked up her ruler, gave me a half a dozen quick little pats, then told me to stand in the corner. A storm of laughter broke loose when it finally occurred to the class that Miss Caroline had whipped me. So the uh, time-honored institution of uh, using corporal punishment to stop students from being bad uh, is utilized by this cosmopolitan recent college grad uh, from the North. But she has no idea how to do it. So she <laughs> just gives a couple little pats and uh, the, the students suddenly realize that she's trying to hurt Scout. The book doesn't show us much more of what the new education looks like. We don't hear much more about Miss Caroline over the rest of the story. But the story does give us two different glances back to the older form of education. For instance, we learn that Jem has undergone or participated in the older form of education, which is called the dunce cap form of education versus the new Dewey Decimal System of education. So it's a time of transition. Um, but um, we can compare the fact that it's called a dunce cap education with one other later reference in the book, about 40 pages later, um, to the older form of education. So at some point in the story, the, the children, they keep trying to get this recluse, Boo Radley, to leave his home. But uh, while Boo Radley doesn't allow himself to be seen by the children, he does start to place objects in a tree for them to find. The uh, scout and Jim are delighted by this, always looking forward to seeing what will be in the tree next. But one of the th things that he puts in the tree is an old spelling medal from when the school, the local school, used to have competitions. <laughs> so dunce capses, which is to say blame, and um, medals, which is to say praise, used to form the core maybe of the older education, or these are the clues that we get. Um, so the new form of education, you can sort of see this playing out today to some extent, is that there should be no calling students dumb. You shouldn't tell them that they're bad. Um, and there's there's something to this way of thinking. Um, to some extent, you know, it doesn't seem good to yell at a seven-year-old about not knowing how to, you know, do math. But we could say this, um, wouldn't you, or do you think that the most transformative moments in your education, did it come when somebody gave you a pat on the head? Or did the transformative moments come when somebody said, the work that you've done isn't good enough, and maybe said it in a harsh or brutal way, or rather just in an honest way? a way that revealed to you that you weren't as good as, that you as you thought you were. Such realizations are always painful, but they present to that person two different pathways. Either you stop doing what you're doing and do something else, or you have to become better. Those are the only two ways to go. And we might add that having steep punishments and also having high praise presupposes something like human freedom, that you can deserve to get good things. You deserve awards. Whereas if you do bad things, you deserve to be blamed. You have earned the bad things that come to you. So the new form of education is one that's ultimately going to cut against human freedom. The new form of education will have to presuppose that it's only external social and material conditions that produce the kind of person that you are and that you yourself are not responsible for um, your own goodness or badness. 
We certainly can't get to the bottom of such uh, an incredibly deep and fundamental debate about education and the character of the human soul. But we could at least say this, I think, um, while it's obviously very complicated, it might be a salutary thing to emphasize our freedom when it comes to education, to emphasize our own responsibility in what happens to us. Because while undoubtedly there is a complicated interplay between what we choose to do and the material and social circumstances in which we try to do those things, uh, it, it seems to me it can't, uh, it would only help to emphasize one's own ability to do something so that if or to the extent that they have any freedom at all, they will do the most of what they can within the situation that they're thrown into. Okay, so that sort of covers the key passages in the book that reveal the most to us about the educational debates and atmosphere in Macomb County at the time. Let's turn then to the view or a progressive view of human nature um, or that Atticus has. But before I bring out the sort of deep failings of Atticus and how his view informs that failure, I do want to bring out a couple moments in which he shows a kind of impressive level of mental clarity to show that even somebody who's capable of achieving such impressive clarity can also fall victim to a kind of progressive view of human nature, which leads them to make grave errors. Here's a passage where Atticus shows something, I, I might be going too far to call it uh, the Socratic disposition, but I think it's something akin to or similar to the Socratic disposition. So the book says, quote, Atticus said, I learned many things today. Oh, and to take a step back, this is Atticus's conversation with Scout about her horrible experience at school with Miss Caroline. So Atticus said, I had learned many things today, and Miss Caroline had learned several things herself. She had learned not to hand something to a Cunningham, for one thing. But if Walter and I had put ourselves in her shoes, we'd have seen it was an honest mistake on her part. We could not expect her to learn all Maycomb's ways in one day, and we could not hold her responsible when she knew no better. So Atticus doesn't immediately leap to blaming a woman who seems to be having a deleterious effect on his daughter's education. Rather, Atticus lays out the character of moral responsibility. If you do not know better, then you cannot be blamed. Only once somebody knows something to be the case, knows what to do, can they be blamed. And in this way, he's fairly generous to others. He assumes that Miss Caroline means to do well. She just does not yet know how to do well. This is a standpoint that Atticus repeats throughout the book. This is not the first time, or this is the first time that he says it, but it's not at all the last time. And Atticus also possesses the corresponding lack of anger that would seem to accompany this view, that for the most part, people just don't know what to do when they're making errors. And so we can't blame them. We can only teach them how to do things better. After the trial goes badly for his client, Tom Robinson, you might have expected Atticus to have been leaping with anger because, and we're not going to go through all the, we're not going to go through the details of the trial, but suffice it to say, I don't think any reader can leave the trial thinking that Atticus didn't do everything in his power, or rather he successfully to most, I guess, clear-sighted observers proves that Tom Robinson is guilty or <laughs> is not guilty. He proves that that's the case. So you might've expected that he would be extremely devastated after the trial, but Atticus is very even keeled about it. He does everything in his power to win, but 
as far as he's concerned, a black man is not likely to defeat a white man in court um, in Macomb, Alabama at this point. And so given that the odds were bad, Atticus tried everything in his power to make the case go otherwise, but it doesn't work out. And he's not overly angry or devastated. He has kind of remarkable kind of emotional stability. And it seems to be a stability that flows out of his understanding that when people make mistakes, they couldn't have done otherwise unless they knew better. All right, so with that praise of Atticus uh, having been done, let's turn to a blame of Atticus. So throughout the book, Atticus consistently encourages children not to fight with other children. Um, Precisely because Atticus has taken on the task of defending Tom Robinson, his children are mercilessly made fun of at school. Um, And Scout uh, is extremely tough. And so she likes to solve her problems, not by telling on other kids, but by beating them up so that they stop talking to her in ways that she doesn't like. Um, Now, you know, some people might praise that kind of self-sufficiency and fierce independence, but Atticus does not like this kind of thing. So He always says that you should not fight. Never fight, he says to Scout. And the reason he says not to fight is because it is childish, which is to say it's backwards. Human beings have now grown up enough within civilization such that they should avoid fighting. Force is no longer required or shouldn't have to be required. Um, By using force, you lose the moral high ground of the conversation and somehow give the person who's speaking to you what they want. Or at least that's what Atticus thinks. We see this view carried out as well with the way uh, that Atticus teaches, or rather does not teach, Jem how to shoot. Jem receives a BB gun for Christmas from his uncle. Now we learn later in the book that Atticus knows how to shoot, and in fact he's the best shot in the entire town. But Atticus declines to teach Jem how to shoot, and he does not encourage him to shoot. The only advice he gives him is not to shoot or kill a mockingbird because that would be a sin. And that's the only thing in the book that Atticus ever ends up calling a sin. But we could say this, that he, yeah, does not teach Jem how to shoot. And that would seem to imply that Atticus hopes for a world in which shooting would not be necessary. Because if you thought it would be necessary and your child had a gun, um, even if it was like a kind of advanced toy gun, You would tell them how. You would want them to know adequately how to use that weaponry. But despite the fact that Atticus needed to learn how to shoot, he envisions a world in which Jem will not have to do so. But this expectation is undermined only seven pages later, seven pages after Atticus says, I'm not going to teach you how to shoot the gun. Then a situation occurs in the town in which a gun is required. There's a dog that just loses its mind, starts foaming at the mouth, and everyone's afraid that it's going to um, bite somebody uh, and hurt them in a big way. Everybody kind of goes inside. The sheriff shows up, and the sheriff calls Atticus because Atticus is reputed to have a much better shot than the sheriff does. So, true to expectation, Atticus ends up killing the dog. And there's a way in which the dog seems to erupt into the story out of nowhere. Nobody expects this to happen. There's no uh, narrative. Well, there's no, you don't really expect that there's going to be a dog (laughs) that shows up. I guess we could put it that way. But this shows us that even in a civilized area, in a civilized town, barbarism can reemerge in all sorts of ways where suddenly the laws turn off and something has to be done. Um, that there are still crucial moments, moments of decision, moments of action. 
and Atticus is called upon in this moment of decision. But despite the fact that he is called upon to use his or to use a weapon in order to defend the town from this unexpected eruption of violent force into the world, that doesn't lead him to then think, you know what, Jim, you should how to you should learn how to shoot after all. That doesn't occur to him. So even when he has to use force, he doesn't prepare his children or the next generation to have to use force. So he's hopeful that that need is something that will slowly wither away and evaporate. That once people come to know better, then everybody will then also act better. So Atticus fails to teach Jem how to protect the civilized world that he will inherit. And so when Jem is older, he may be at a loss when such forces, forces encroach later in his life. As a small aside then, or sort of adding on this progressive vision, later in the book, when the KKK is mentioned, Atticus goes out of his way to say, the KKK is gone and will never come back. Which is to say, he expects that people have learned enough such that one wouldn't expect an organization like that to re-emerge. That in Atticus's view, um, horrible or disgusting mistakes were made in the past, but those mistakes have been learned from such that we shouldn't expect such forces to reemerge in the world. Then, um, shortly after the mention of the KKK, there is uh, another event which puts Atticus's progressive view of human nature to the test. So Tom Robinson, um, he has been staying outside of town. This is, again, the, the black man who's been falsely accused of rape. He's been staying at a prison far away from town. But the night before the trial is going to uh, go on, he has to be housed in a Maycomb jail. And so Atticus fears that some men might try to kill him or something along those lines. And so he goes to the jail where Tom is staying. The sheriff has been called away on some other pretext to the other side of town, meaning that nobody, nobody at all is there to protect Tom should something bad happen. So Atticus goes to Tom Robinson's prison cell to stay the night. He's worried enough about the nature of man that he feels that he does have to spend the night in front of the cell, which is to say he presumes that something bad would happen if he did not do that. Nevertheless, he brings no weapons and no friends, meaning that he thinks the shame of somebody watching anybody who might come is enough to prevent them doing anything. Shame will stop action. Force is not going to be required. A group of men who are going to come after Tom do indeed show up. But shockingly or surprisingly, also Atticus's children show up because they're curious why Atticus has gone away. He doesn't really tell them what he's going to do. The conversation isn't going particularly well uh, for Atticus prior to Scout showing up. And Scout bursts into the scene and she sees Walter Cunningham's father. Um, a man who is known for his honesty. And so she, not recognizing that violence is imminent, ends up basically talking to Mr. Cunningham. Mr. Cunningham, how's Walter doing? Um, this sort of shocking instance of a child emerging into the scene is what makes it so that the men decide to leave. So this is something that something that both cuts against and is in favor of Atticus's positive view of human nature. We could say the situation cuts against Atticus's view because 
it's um, pretty clear that the men, or at least we don't know for sure, but it's quite possible that the men would have harmed Atticus and then harmed, harmed Tom Robinson had Scout not shown up, which is to say um, Atticus would be wrong to think that shame from an adult was enough to stop them from doing evil. On the other hand, uh, you could say that Atticus's positive view of human nature is partially confirmed, and he sees the confirmation side of this and not the uh, refutation side of this, in as much as the men yield to Scout's sort of, I guess, naive charms. Indeed, Atticus finds so much confirmation of his own view uh, in light of the situation that he goes on to say that there should be a police force of children. Um, and in that way, he admits that without children at that situation, um, he may have been out of luck in a big way. And then this leads us to what might be the biggest failure that emerges from his positive view of human nature. Now, to add a little bit more to Atticus's side of the argument, we could say that this book constantly shows us characters that are more than they seem, where even the trash man is more than he seems. He turns out to be in possession of an incredibly beautiful singing voice. We don't always look at the guys driving around on dumpster trucks and assume uh, that they could sing a beautiful song. Um, and this happens throughout the book. There's a woman named Mrs. DuBose who says terrible things to Jim and Scout, but it turns out that she, at the end of her life, is fighting against a morphine addiction, and she sort of courageously overcomes this. And so all these characters that we see look one way at first turn out to be much better than they seem. And so that's part of what Atticus takes as evidence for his view of the po or a kind of positive view of human nature, or that human nature is ultimately benign or even good. But this expectation that all people are better than they seem betrays Atticus. After the trial of Tom Robinson, <coughs> where well, Tom Robinson ends up losing the case, the man, Bob Yule, who is leading the uh, I guess you could say charges against Tom uh, is humiliated because while the jury ends up voting with Bob and his daughter, Mayella, um, more or less everybody else there is able to see very clearly that this man is not good. Um, he's the kind of man who spends what little money he gets from the government on whiskey, who doesn't care for his children at all. His kids basically live in a dump, you know, uh, and spend their time playing with trash. So, He's humiliated. He wants to use this trial as a way to gain respectability, and quite the opposite happens to him. So he seeks revenge on Atticus, and indeed, he tells Atticus to his face that he will get his revenge, and he spits in Atticus's face. This leads Atticus to say that he thinks that Bob has gotten this out of his system, that he needed to have one outburst at Atticus, and that that would be enough to satisfy him, that he would not actually seek revenge beyond spitting at him and making an idle threat. But then we see in the story, after the spitting incident, that Bob harasses Tom Robinson's wife. She, he tries to make it so that she can't walk to work anymore um, without fear of him. And so Tom Robinson's wife has to be defended by her employer. So that's so he does that. That Atticus learns of this, but is still not yet moved. Now Bob has got it out of his system. Then Bob breaks into the judge who oversaw the trial's house. Um, he doesn't end up really doing anything in the house, but he still breaks into the house. 
So Bob has started to target all of the people who are involved in the trial, and at the very least is seeking to harass them, if not harm them. But after receiving three, or after receiving three different pieces of evidence that Bob is seeking to do some kind of damage to everybody involved in the trial, Atticus still makes no provisions to protect his children. Uh, um, Scout has a play where she's going to be a piece of ham in some sort of uh, strange agricultural production that will be put on at the school. She and Jem have to walk to school much later than they would have in any other circumstance. The night is pitch black. There are almost no street lamps between them and the school, or there's at least a long distance that they have to walk without any light. That something bad will happen to them is foreshadowed in the book as a kid comes out of the dark and scares them half to death on their walk to the school. On their walk back from the school, Jem and Scout assume that uh, they're being stalked by a child again. Only it turns out that it is Bob Yule with a knife. This man is willing to attack, uh, you know, effectively like a, a third grader and a fifth grader um, in the middle of the night trying to murder them. The children are saved by Boo Radley. Boo Radley, who they'd spent so much time trying to get to know at the beginning of the book, suddenly comes out of his house um, in, a, in a great moment of action to defend the children which is extremely fortunate because nobody in the town would have expected Boo Radley of all people to be ready. So this incident with Bob Yule, it points to a severe limitation on Atticus's naive view of the world or his understanding of the way that things are. Atticus's hope that the wheels of history will eventually come to a halt at, at, which, at which time we will no longer have to worry about violence or evil in the world, or at least that yeah, that we, won't, we won't have to worry about those things. He looks forward to that time, and he does not, or rather you could say that this view that he has makes him extremely vulnerable to such forces. And because he doesn't have a view of the human heart that maybe you could say emerges out of Lord of the Flies or something like that, or that he expects that the world will become qualitatively morally better, he isn't able to take precautions. Um, and indeed, I guess, you could say that he hopes for the impossible. All right, so with that blame or critique of Atticus's view in hand, we could also say that to some extent Atticus does point us towards maybe a view that's much more adequate or one that would help us understand the world much better with the speech that he makes at the end of Tom Robinson's trial about the true meaning of equality. This speech is worth reading in its entirety. Um, and I guess we could preface this by saying that Atticus, like most of us, likely is confused or he holds different moral opinions in his heart that don't quite fit together and hasn't done everything that one needs to do to try to make it so that all of your moral opinions fit together or are consistent with one another. He hasn't done that. So while he does have a progressive view of human nature, he also has an appreciation for the view of the American founders. And I think with some qualifications in this speech, he does a good job pointing to something like what the American founders have in mind. Okay, so here is what Atticus says at the end of Tom Robinson's trial to the jury. Quote, One more thing, gentlemen, before I quit. Thomas Jefferson once said that all men are created equal, a phrase that the Yankees and the distaff side of the executive branch in Washington are fond of hurling at us. There is a tendency in this year of grace, 1935, for certain people to use this phrase out of context, to satisfy all conditions. The most ridiculous example I can think of is that the people who run public education promote the stupid and idle along with the industrious because all men are created equal. 
educators will gravely tell you that children left behind suffer terrible feelings of inferiority. We know all men are not created equal in the sense that some people would have us believe. Some people are smarter than others. Some people have more opportunity because they're born with it. Some men make more money than others. Some ladies make better cakes than others. Some people are born gifted beyond the normal scope of most men. But there is one way in this country in which all men are created equal. There is one human institution that makes the pauper the equal of a Rockefeller. The stupid man of <clears throat> the stupid man the equal of an Einstein, and the ignorant man the equal of any college president. That institution, gentlemen, is a court. It can be the Supreme Court of the United States or the humblest JP court in the land, or this honorable court, which you serve. Our courts have their fault, as does any human institution. But in this country, our courts are the great levelers, and in our courts, all men are created equal. I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and in the jury system. That is no ideal to me. It is a living, working reality. Gentlemen, a court is no better than each of you sitting before me on this jury. A court is only as sound as its jury, and a jury is only as sound as the men who make it up. I'm confident that you gentlemen will review without passion the evidence you have heard, come to a decision, and restore the defendant to his family. In the name of God, do your duty. So this powerful speech helps confirm our sense, or what I tried to bring out earlier, that Harper Lee probably is critical of progressive education, or at least sees severe limitations on it, or thinks that it would have to be modified, and that the meaning of equality has to do with equality under the law, that that's what Jefferson means when he talks about equality. So I, I definitely you know recommend this book to your attention. I think other things to talk about in the book are some of the there's some incredible passages where because Scout is a child, Harper Lee allows her to ask very naive questions um, about biology, heredity, um, sex, and race. Um, and those things would be worth exploring um, at some point again. But um, the book is more complicated than it might first appear. And so uh, hopefully this helped, helped bring that out to you. All right. Brian Wilson is out.